0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are the everlasting God who has changed us from the inside out. Father, we long to worship you with more of our hearts and more of our lives. We ask that you might use this sermon to help us to give all of our lives to you, that we may invest our lives in things that are eternal and things that are worth it. They may love you and have the comfort and glory that you afford. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, today we are continuing in our series on Ecclesiastes. So as we've been talking about, this is Solomon's observations about what life looks like under the sun. And today we're going to be looking at Solomon's observations about the pursuit of wealth. All right, so today we are talking about money. So, hold on to your wallets, right? All right, get ready for it. All right, so we're actually hearing about money from one of the richest men in all of history and also one of the wisest. So this is a guy who has experience. He knows what life looks like, what the pursuit of wealth looks like and what that really amounts to. So, we need to hear this because if we're honest with ourselves, we are wealthy people. We are a wealthy nation probably one of the wealthiest nations that has ever been in the history of the world. And we are probably, most of us, probably individually well off. If we put our our lives in the grand scheme of things, compare ourselves to other nations, other peoples, uh, we are wealthy. And so if we're going to be wealthy Christians, we need to be careful. And we need to recognize uh, what the Bible says about wealth. And also, uh, we need to be people who learn how to pursue the greater wealth that God gives us, and also, we need to recognize how we can actually spend our worldly wealth in ways that is different than the world does. We're going to be people who actually are pursuing the kingdom with our wealth. So, that is going to be our goal today, to help us get more towards that. But before we jump into this, we have to recognize that there is a certain power in money. The Bible is honest about that. It doesn't just say that that money is worthless, that we should just run away from money. It recognizes that there is a power to money and we need to be careful with that power. That that power uh, gives us an ability to actually shape the world. It can shape the, the mind of a person. It can shape uh, kind of what we pursue, what we love. But we also have to recognize that, that wealth does not have total power. There are things that wealth cannot give us. Specifically, things like satisfaction, things like comfort, things like ultimate glory. And those are things that we try to pursue with money, but we don't actually get there. And we get frustrated, we're actually using money to the wrong end. And so, today we're going to be talking about money. We're going to talk about, first of all, it's power. And then we're going to get behind the heart of wealth and talk about how we might seek comfort and seek glory with our money and in a way that is actually honoring to God. All right, so let's turn to Ecclesiastes 5. We're gonna be looking at verses 8 through 20. This is Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 20. All right, let's jump in. Starting at verse eight. If you see a province, if you see in a province, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, the king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart." All right, so verse 8, let's jump in there. If you see a province, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them." All right. So last week we talked about oppression, talked about oppression and injustice in this world, and Solomon is back on that topic. But he's here with a kind of a more focused trajectory. Last time we just talked about how oppression was broadly the result of sin, the reality that we are in a fallen world and that we are in our hearts sinful. But Solomon is more specific here. He's focusing on why is there oppression, and he's saying it's because of the love of money and the love of wealth. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. So Solomon, he wastes no time in getting to the real problem with pursuing wealth in this life, the fact that it will not satisfy. It does not satisfy. Now, what he isn't saying, he isn't saying that money is impossible to gather. It's not the money that's fleeting, that it's always disappearing. It's the fact that if you love it, you will never be satisfied with it. It's the satisfaction that is fleeting, that is elusive, that we will never actually be able to grab hold of. That is the problem with the pursuit of wealth. You will never be satisfied. And in verse 9, Solomon recognizes that there's a tendency for everyone to kind of pursue wealth at the expense of other people. That this lust for more and more, this yearning for satisfaction actually makes this kind of addiction in us. That though we get more and more and more, we are satisfied less and less and less. And so we actually start kind of needing a greater fix, more and more wealth to get the same high and the result is oppression, that we actually start stooping really low and pursuing wealth at, at any any means to any end. And Solomon recognizes that in verse nine. It's kind of cryptic, so let's look at it. Verse nine, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. All right, if you look at your footnotes after that verse, it actually says that this, this Hebrew phrase is uncertain or something like that. Um, <laughs> So there's um, there's not really clear what that is trying to say. And in the course of the argument, it doesn't really make much sense. Um, From the Hebrew, I would say that it, it should be translated something like this, that the land is for the profit of everyone, but the king is served by the fields. That the land should be for the profit of everyone, but it's the king that profits from the fields. I think this is actually Solomon looking at his own heart and recognizing that he, as one of the highest officials, the king, is guilty of oppression himself. That he, in his own lust for more and more wealth, has resorted to oppression. He's reflecting on his own kingship, looking at his own guilt, the ways that he has actually abused power and abused people as a result. All right, so maybe that's not super plausible, but To you, but actually, Solomon was known throughout his reign for his slave labor. He was actually known for oppressing people to get his wealth. They see that throughout Kings, throughout Chronicles. He actually used what was called corvée. Corvée has an accent. I like accents. (laughs) I love LeMay. LeMay, we have accents. Um, (laughs) All right, so what was corvée? Corvée was forced slave labor to kind of, so that you could create monumental. Uh, buildings, right? Uh, This is the same thing that was actually used against Israel in Egypt. That was the slavery they were under, was corvee, That they would have to build more and more bricks with less straw. That they were the ones who built the monuments in Egypt. And so here, Solomon is using that same slavery against his own people. The same slavery that God freed the Israelites from in Egypt Solomon is bringing it back and he is using it against his own people. That is how he built his empire of wealth. That is how he became the wealthiest king in the history of Israel. One of the richest men alive. And so he's looking back on his life and seeing that the desire for wealth, a love for money, has taken him down this really dark path. A place where he probably never could have seen himself going. This is actually the, the reason that Israel split in two was in part because of this treachery, this, this oppression. And so we have to see the pursuit of wealth for the danger that it is. It can take us down these same dark roads. We don't tend to think of it like that. We think of it as money is just something that we, we use to get the things that we want. But in pursuing these things, we're actually enslaving ourselves. We're taking part in the addictive cycle oftentimes and running after the next thing, the next thing, and the next. And that's that's why the Bible understands that money does have a sort of power to it. It has the power to get things done and change the world, yes. But it also has the power to oppress people. And it has the power to corrupt our own hearts. It has the power to enslave us. Uh, that, is, that is the trouble. It actually captures our hearts and demands our love. It has all these promises behind it, all these promises of what it can give you. And if we listen to those promises and pursue those promises, we'll find that they're actually lies. They're lies and we get led astray and we, we fall into the trap so that we become either oppressors, running after money to, to hurt those, uh, probably our our family, our children, we shirk the responsibilities that we have as as larger people. that's probably who we're going to oppress, but we also become oppressed by this dissatisfaction, this lack of of getting what we think we really want, and we're led astray. All right, so when we're talking about money, we need to be on guard. when we're using money, we need to recognize that that we have something in our hand that is powerful and has the power to corrupt. It's kind of like hand, handling a, a poisonous snake, right? So you can you can hold the snake, but you're always watching it because at any moment it can, it can turn and snap, you know, and get you and poison you. That's how we treat money. And I think we've lost that because I think we are generally surrounded by, by wealth and we've grown up in a culture and a world that is broadly wealthy. Don't forget that 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 money is is a snake in some sense. All right, so we need to guard our hearts. Guard our hearts from the snake. Not that it's evil, but that it's something to be careful with, not to be trifled with, to recognize it for what it is. All right, so how do we protect our hearts? We protect our hearts by, first of all, pursuing what will actually satisfy our hearts so we don't get stuck in the trap. And secondly, we start to reject all of the other things that would draw us in, all of the false promises. We reject all of those things and stop pursuing them. That's just kind of the, how we fight sin, that's how we fight struggles, that's how we fight addiction in general, is we find what will really satisfy what we're looking for and then reject everything else. And so today we're actually gonna be looking at the heart behind wealth. Why do we want to be wealthy? What are its promises? I think that wealth promises two things. It probably promises a lot more than that, but we're talking about two of them, so only two. Uh, First of all, comfort. It promises comfort. And secondly, it promises glory. All right, so we're gonna start with comfort. Let's jump in there. Now, we want to be wealthy so we can be comfortable. And that becomes kind of a certain amount of immunity from the hardships of the world. Comfort is a way of blocking those things out, of protecting ourselves from hardship. That's our way of escaping. So in one sense, comfort is, is kind of simply hedonistic. So we, want, we have this picture in our head of, of having a really hard day and just coming home and you have your nice comfortable house, your nice comfortable couch, you had some good food, you sit down, you watch your big screen, You just kind of let all those troubles kind of just ease away. You guys sleep in a nice, big, comfortable bed. Sleep away the troubles. You go to work in a comfortable car. You just kind of surround yourself with these things as a shelter from the hardship of the world. We wonder, well, that sounds pretty good. (laughs) That sounds great. What's wrong with that? Um, Well, Solomon, Solomon, uh, he's our... He's our resident killjoy here. So he comes, he comes, and he pops that balloon by first focusing on how impractical that sort of life is and shows us what wealth is really like. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So Solomon has has had lots of wisdom. He's seen wealth. And he's basically saying that The wealthier you get, the more you have to lose, the more you have to sustain, the more you have to manage, the more work it takes to actually be wealthy. That it ultimately sometimes just comes to more money coming into your bank account and more money leaving, and you're just watching more money. You're not really actually being that wealthy in any real sense. It's kind of an illusion. So we can create bigger businesses, have more employees, do more work, and yet our lives don't become more comfortable. We just have more work to do. We've created more work for ourselves and made a bigger enterprise. But in the end, we're not actually that much more comfortable. Or he might say that in our wealth, we end up just having bigger mortgages and larger car payments. We have larger insurance premiums. And so in the end, all we're doing is making ourselves just as attached to finances and financially unstable as the rest of the world. We've kind of just placed a larger burden on ourselves. Or or he might say that we spend all of our time kind of taking care of our luxury goods. We We're after caring for our big giant houses or cleaning our boats, waxing our cars, these sorts of things where we actually spend our time not doing what we would want to do or what we feel called to do, what we love to do. We're actually just maintaining a lifestyle. And in that sense, we kind of end up wasting our lives by making our lives all about the management of a luxury life and don't really live with purpose. And so that's Solomon's kind of practical wisdom. That the pursuit of wealth just is a foolish way of being comfortable. You just create more work for yourself in a sense. But verse 12, Solomon actually makes it a little more pointed. Verse verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, why can the Laborer sleep, but the rich man cannot. Now, some would say that it's because of his, his full stomach that he's eaten too much. That's, that's, a dumb, that's a dumb interpretation. Don't go that way. It's not because he's uncomfortable. He, he ate too much of this good food. No, it's a, he's completely comfortable physically. His stomach is full. His, his bed is softer than the laborer. His blankets are better. His home is warmer. It's not the physical discomfort It's the fact that his heart will not let him sleep. Because his heart is constantly toiling, his heart is constantly anxious. His heart is constantly striving to make more. He's kind of built himself up so high that he's always working not to fall. He has too much to maintain, too much to pursue, too much to manage. And he finds himself actually with no comfort in his very soul. Now, you might ask, well, he, that's his choice to be like that. He just needs to loosen up, right? And then, then he could have his cake. you need it too. He just needs to, to chill out and be okay with his wealth. I bet, I bet you could manage it, you know, you're thinking that. Oh, I, could probably, I could probably handle the wealth. But the problem is that the problem is in the heart where all of our problems start. And one phrase by Jesus is actually really, really helpful here. Where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now what this means is that your heart follows your treasure. We oftentimes use it the other way. We say that, oh, you, uh, you spend your treasure on the things you love. Which is true. You do kind of buy things you like. So the, the thing is that that's not uh, super insightful on Jesus' behalf. Okay, we spend our money on things we like. But it's actually saying just the opposite. It's saying that where you throw your treasure, your heart will actually follow. It goes the other way as well. So if you invest all of your treasure in the world, your heart will dwell in the world. If your treasure is thrown at these perishable things, at the car, the house, all of your stuff, your heart's going to find itself wrapped up in those things. And it's going to be attached to all of this perishable stuff. And a heart that's kind of rooted and dependent upon perishable things is going to be anxious, it's going to be unsettled. Because everything that the heart loves is going to be lost and can be lost at any moment. To the extent that we put our our hearts in things that can be lost, we're going to be anxious. And we're not going to have true peace and comfort. So practically, we recognize that we should be investing in things that are eternal, and our hearts will follow those things. Our hearts will be stable. And there's only one eternal thing. God himself, eh, there's a couple. God himself, Jesus Christ, the eternal kingdom. That is where we are called to invest our treasures. Amen. That we, when we invest our treasures there, our heart will actually find itself attached to the kingdom, attached to God himself. We'll be rooted there in a place where nothing perishes, moth and rust do not destroy. Amen. The thieves cannot come in and rob. We will be stable, stable in the kingdom. Our hearts will be attached to things that cannot be lost. So, okay, so we we wonder sometimes why we aren't more satisfied with God. Why we don't rejoice in Him more. We might say, well, I just, I want to love Him more. One of the reasons why we might not be satisfied is because we haven't invested much in God. We haven't put our treasure there, and so our, our hearts are wandering around. We put our hearts in other things, and we actually lead our hearts astray. To go after other things than God Himself. So we are called to invest in eternal things, to invest in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is eternal and will actually transcend all of these trials. Things that will not perish, things that will not go away. And when we invest the treasures, our hearts will follow and our hearts will find themselves in the kingdom. In the kingdom of God our Father. And when our hearts are dwelling there, we can recognize that it's not our money that is our comfort. It's the fact that we have God as Father. God will become our comforter. Not our money, not all of these things. The God of all comfort will be true and real to our hearts. All right, so let's make this really practical. All right, let's say you have $300. You can spend it on a watch. Or you can give it to the poor. All right, so if you, if you spend it on the watch, you're in a, a small sense kind of drawing your heart towards the watch and making it more attached to kind of this piece of metal around your wrist. All right, if you give to the poor, then you're kind of putting first the kingdom of God and your heart is going to be led there. You're kind of investing in your relationship with God. Investing in the fact that, that God comes first. And your heart will find the assurance and it will actually build your relationship with God. You'll rest more in his love. You'll trust more in his comfort. You actually lead your heart towards where it needs to be. Now, it seems kind of maybe kind of dumb and simplistic, but we have all those kind of choices to make with money. We have those choices. Where are we going to spend our, th- our, spend our real money? And We have to recognize that where we spend our money is where our hearts are going to go. So we have to make that decision wisely. Actually, I want to invest in a thing that will bring us true and ultimate comfort. All right, so that's comfort. Well, we have a second thing that money promises. This one is a more maybe a little more elusive, well, something we might not uh, think about. But money promises us glory. Glory. Now, we're not a culture that talks about glory in that way. Um, so we might need to kind of flesh that out a little bit. In in the Hebrew, glory means kind of weight or heaviness. So ironically, we're we're spending our money to, to gain weight, right? But uh, <laughs> But what it means is it's power. We're gaining kind of clout. We can throw our weight around when we have glory. We have influence. We have social capital. And a lot of the times we're using our money to get that. Because rich people, they're respected. They are honored. They have a certain dignity about them. When we have a Ferrari drives by, there's some clout with that. Even though like, uh, okay, but like, you, you do look and like, oh, who's that? And there's some influence there. When you go into certain neighborhoods, the really wealthy neighborhoods, there's some like fear and awe, fear and trembling to it. That is glory. It is the glory that money actually affords. And oftentimes we want money so that we can have that so we can have that respect, that honor, that sense of value. We see kind of weird things happen with that. We see people who, who make weird sacrifices, things like where they live in a shack, but they have a sports car, or a $60,000 pickup. And you wonder like, well, are they just fools? Like, No, they're using their money so that they can get glory. No one sees their little house. People see them in their fancy car, and they think well of them. They're pursuing wealth to pursue glory. All right, so the natural question is, what do you buy to make yourself more glorious? Maybe it is the car. Maybe it's clothing. Maybe it's makeup. Maybe it's the toys that, that gain you some reputation as a fun person. I don't know. But Solomon tells the story of this kind of guy. A man who is actually using wealth to find glory. Now, we might not recognize it as that because it's kind of culturally situated. But this is a guy who wants to become a wealthy man. And his plan is that if he becomes this really wealthy man, he'll gain all that clout. And then as the highest thing you could do in that culture, he wants to give all of that wealth and honor to his son. That he had so much glory and honor and wealth to himself, that he can pass it on and actually make his name last forever. He has his reputation as an upright, upstanding Israelite. Verse 13, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So, in this culture, that's, that's how you gain this dignity and honor. We think of Fiddler on the Roof, right? When he's singing that song, If I Were a Rich Man, it's not really mostly about comfort. It's that he wants the clout. He wants for people to respect him, for him to, to walk up and down the streets and people respect him. They want to hear his opinion. They want to know what wisdom he offers. That is wealth for glory. And unfortunately, this man has lost it. He had this plan, and he loses all of it. So that he is destitute, and he can give his son nothing. And that's the reality of working for glory through wealth, is that it can be lost. It can be lost through these random terrible situations, through poverty, through the loss of a job, through just a freak accident, and you can lose that glory glory can be robbed away from you. But there's another sense where Solomon actually, Solomon is never the optimist. He takes takes it one step further and he recognizes that death will always steal this glory away from you. That death will inevitably make all of us poor before God. Verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? We have this saying that you can take nothing with you. That That is the case. That sooner or later we will be poor. We will have nothing to our name, not a penny. That in the end, after death, we will be naked as we came, and some of us will be naked and ashamed because we'll have none of that glory that we've used to clothe ourselves throughout our years on this life. And so in the end, the only glory you will have is the glory that is in you, that is true to you, that is in your very person. Now for this rich man, who is now a poor man, we see verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. He never recovers from his loss of glory. He never fosters any inward glory for himself, but instead he becomes bitter and angry at God. And he proves himself to be inwardly poor, to be destitute at heart, to be poor in spirit, He is hardened and resentful and has no glory to himself. So we have to recognize that that wealth will not get us that glory in the end. It can be lost and it will be lost in death if that's all we have. So how do we get glory? How do we pursue glory in a way that will be eternal and lasting? I hope you're seeing the answer to those questions. We have to pursue that glory in God Himself, in the One who is glorious. And that happens by actually adoring God Himself, attaching ourselves to Him and receiving the glory from Him as a gift. So we talked about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We must learn to be men and women who treasure God above all else. And then our hearts will go and dwell with the God of glory. Our hearts will actually be in the presence of God and be shaped and renewed by His glory. We become glorious people from the inside out. Not putting on all these external things. We be internally glorious people. And with that kind of glory, it doesn't matter what kind of car you drive or what you're wearing. You have a true and internal dignity. Dear a man or a woman who fears God and honors Him, that kind of derives all of this value from the fact that you are a son or daughter of the glorious God of eternity. That is a glory that cannot be lost. That is the glory that we're looking for. And we find that glory only when we treasure God. But you may ask, okay, I, I hear you that I should find my glory there. Seems like a a good path to get there, but I don't know if I treasure God that much. How do you treasure God? How do you become someone who finds your glory in Him? I think it starts with recognizing that Jesus Christ has made you His treasure first. So God the Son, He left Heaven itself, the place of absolute comfort and absolute glory for you. And he became the poor man, the poor carpenter, so that he might make you his treasure. He might cleanse us by his death. He might actually make us into his prized possessions. These kind of glorious trophies. He loves us. He really does. And he treasured us enough to give away all that he had. His treasure was put into us and he dwells with us by the Spirit. He is with us in our very hearts. There's a glory and a comfort there. To know that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, died for us. He loved us. And he turned us into sons and daughters of God. There is no greater glory or comfort in that. That God is for us and nothing can be against us. Amen. We have the glory of united, being united to this infinite God, who is infinitely valuable. Okay. So how does that change things? How does that change our life? First of all, it will make us, just simply put, into people who are content. Content in this life. Verse 18. That is freedom from just running after all of these wealth, all of these things, and to accept that this is what God has given us. That God has given us Christ. He's given us his salvation. He's given us the treasure of his son. And we accept that I'm I'm good with that. I'm good with the glory and comfort of being united to Christ. That Christ is what is most valuable to me. He is the one who is most valuable. And from there, we're we're going to be content people. Content that we've received so much. And maybe even more than content. People who will actually give just as Jesus has given to us. And with that kind of heart, we're free from all of this oppression. We're free from running after wealth and being oppressed by it. We're free from becoming oppressors. And can instead actually reverse the oppression and actually give to the poor. Give to people who need it. Put the priorities of the kingdom first. Because we're not spending all of our money running after these fleeting things. Fleeting comfort. Fleeting glory. We already have what we need. And we can now use money for the power that it is. The power to do what we want to do to honor Christ, to build the kingdom, invest our lives in things that are eternal. So I guess today, we should, let us consider how we might become a different kind of people with our wealth. That we might actually become poor according to the world, but rich towards God. We have a sure bet that Jesus Christ is coming back, that His death and resurrection have given us entrance into that kingdom, and that everything we exert towards that kingdom will come back tenfold. We have that promise. That is our guarantee. And when Jesus comes back, your only regret will be that you did not invest more. You'll be with Him. You will be satisfied and you'll recognize that everything should have been given to this King, because He's given everything to us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we rejoice and be satisfied in the wealth of Jesus Christ, that You have blessed us immensely in Him. Father, would You forgive us that we put uh, greed and love of money uh, above you. But Father, we recognize that Christ died for that sin as he died for every other that he might bring us into this kingdom of God. Father, would you use our wealth to invest in this kingdom that we may be people who are wise and have invested our lives in something that really matters. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name.